But please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 61. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 620. But if you'd also keep uh, a finger in the Luke Gospel reading that we had, Luke 4, verses 16 through 21, that's found on page 860. We'll be looking briefly at that passage as well. So we're actually coming near the end of our study in Isaiah. And Lord willing, I will finish up this uh, uh, study in Isaiah next Sunday. And then uh, after that, after next week, I'll actually be out of the pulpit for four weeks. We'll be on vacation for, for two of those weeks. We'll be having a ruling elder from First Pres um, in Macon uh, who will be here, Christopher Marks. He'll be preaching the first week that I'm gone. And then the second week, our ruling elder, uh, Mike Wright, will be preaching for us. And then after that, we'll be back. But we're going to have two missionaries uh, preaching for us and two homegrown missionaries. So one of them is Rick Searle, who many of you know, who's a former member of Northgate, who's now a uh, teaching elder, and he is going to be going uh, to Africa to do some teaching as a missionary. And then also our current ruling elder and current member, um, Jeremiah Pitts, will be here on August 6th. They're, he started off preaching here, and then the last week here, they're going to preach here. So he'll be here. So that is, that is one thing that, is, uh, that I'm also very, uh, very happy about. For such a small church, we have so many missionaries, people serving. Uh, the, the PCA has a challenge to churches to raise up 1% of the members to send off to the mission field. Well, if you count the Pitts family and you count the Evan and uh, Caroline, who was serving uh, as a missionary, we had about 10% of our church serving in the mission field. So that's a, an amazing thing. And not only that, is, is also helping other churches. Last week I wasn't here. I was preaching in, in, a, in a church in Dawson. Uh, they didn't have a preacher, so their preacher can go on vacation. And uh, Travis is going to be preaching in July in uh, Valdosta. And then Nathan and I are both going to be going to Perry to help preach. So again, that is a, a blessing we have as a small church to be able to, uh, to help out and, and to, uh, uh, to, to teach other churches. And... Um, Lord willing, then in August, we're going to start a study in the book of Acts. So that's where we're going to be going. So two more in, in Isaiah. So we're, this morning we're in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prisons to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that it tells us. We thank you for answered prophecy. And, and we stand amazed as we look at prophecy written by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that fulfillment. We thank you for the trust that we can have in your word. But Lord, we do know that we need your Holy Spirit to, to apply your word. Your word is true, no matter what. But we are dull to it. We cannot hear it. We cannot get any benefit from it without your spirit. And Lord, we, we plead with you. We beg that your spirit will be with us, that your spirit will be with me, that you will anoint my words, that I will speak your truth, and that we will hear from you, that we will see the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray, Father, that each one of us here will be changed. If any here do not know you, that will change today. We will come to a saving knowledge of you. And each one of us who does know you will be drawn closer to you. 
We will be conformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, sometimes it's difficult when we're reading through prophecy, these these prophetic sections in the Old Testament, to know exactly what it's talking about. It's really easy to, 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 to immediately apply it to us, to immediately apply it to our own situation, to know precisely what God plans and how he plans to fulfill this prophecy. Now, thankfully, for the most part in Isaiah, what we've been looking at, we don't have this problem. And the reason we don't have this problem is because we actually have the inspired, divinely inspired interpretation of the prophecy that we see in Isaiah. And it's explicitly given to us in the New Testament. And as we've seen over the last several months as we've been going through Isaiah, these prophecies all point to Jesus. They are all fulfilled in Jesus. And this is the same the case in this passage that we're studying this morning. In our gospel reading that Nathan just read for us from Luke chapter 4, Jesus read this very passage that we are reading this morning. And Jesus tells us what it means. Jesus tells us how it is fulfilled. Or more precisely, Jesus tells us in whom it is fulfilled. And it is fulfilled in himself. Now the people of Nazareth who, who, who heard Jesus say this, they knew exactly what it meant. See, they knew this passage from Isaiah that Jesus had read and had said was fulfilled in him. They knew this was a messianic passage. They knew that Jesus' application of this passage, Jesus was saying he was the Messiah. He fulfilled this word spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, the problem was not that Jesus claimed Messiah. No, the problem became because Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they expected. See, they had a false expectation. And we've talked about this before. The understanding of the Messiah during Jesus' time is that he would have been a political leader. He would have been a military leader. He would deliver the Jewish people from their Gentile oppressors. Basically, he would turn the tables on the Romans. See, they they wanted to be in power. The the, the Jewish people would be in power, and the Romans would be punished for their oppression of God's people. However, Jesus doesn't meet these expectations. Jesus, this is not Jesus' message. See, Jesus is calling his people, Jesus is calling the Jewish people to repentance. He's not saying anything about judgment on the Gentiles. In fact, he's actually talking about mercy on the Gentiles. He's talking about bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom. See, Jesus wasn't ushering in a time of glory, a time of glory either for himself or for his people. And that's what they were expecting. That's what they were expecting. They were expecting him to be a hero. They expected this was going to be the golden time for them. But rather, he's calling them a time of service. He's calling them to a time of sacrifice. See, rather than being the the conquering hero, Jesus is the suffering servant. And his people, rather than enjoying victory and glory, they too are called to service and sacrifice. And Jesus calls all of us, all of us who follow him, to the same fate. Jesus came not to reign, at least not to reign physically. Jesus came to die. Die as an atoning sacrifice for his people. And this is not what was expected. And this is why Jesus was rejected by his people, rejected by the Jewish people. He did not meet their expectations. And it's tempting for us, looking back, to sit in judgment to these people and wonder, how could they have missed it? I mean, it seems so obvious to us. How could they have been so dense? But I think as we, as we read through these prophecies in Isaiah, Their view becomes, I think, quite understandable. 
You know, as we read through Isaiah, and, and I noticed this when I was preparing to, to, to preach through Isaiah. Normally when I'm preparing to preach, I will go through a book several times. And usually like when I'm running or exercising, I'll listen to it. Listen to the whole thing, start to finish. Now with Isaiah, that's a pretty long thing. But as I'm listening to it, Isaiah seems to be bouncing all over the place. All over the place with these, with these prophecies. One moment you see mercy, the next moment you see judgment. And we see judgment both on God's people and on God's enemies. And then we see mercy on God's people and mercy on the Gentiles. We see a suffering servant and we see a conquering warrior. And from these prophecies, it's it's very easy for us to get confused of the role of Messiah because he seems to, to be all over the place. Is he a conquering hero? Is he a suffering servant? Well, the truth is the prophecies point to both. He is both a conquering hero and a suffering servant. And we learn something, I think, very important about Jesus' role as Messiah by the way he quotes this passage that we're looking at this morning in Isaiah. So I want you to take a look at the quote in Luke, from Luke chapter 4, verse 19. And I want you to compare it with Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. And notice that Jesus cuts short the quote that we see here. It's not the same. Jesus ends his quote in Luke 4, 19. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's the end of the quote. But look at Isaiah 61 too. It says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. So what is Jesus doing here? Why is, Je- why is it different? What is he doing? Is he soft-pedaling it here? Is he telling them just what they, they want to hear? Only quoting the, the year of the Lord's favor and not the day of vengeance? Is this, as some people think, the, the kinder, gentler Jesus? You know, he's not that, that mean, nasty God of the Old Testament, the, the old judgment and wrath. This is the, the kinder, gentler Jesus, all about love and acceptance. Is this the reason? See, Jesus, I think, shows us in this quotation and in other places what was hidden from the Old Testament prophets and what caused us confusion. It causes confusion both for people in Jesus' day, but also confusion for us when we're looking at these messianic messianic prophecies and i think the reason here the reason we see such contrasting prophecies about the messiah we see mercy we see judgment we see suffering we see triumph is because the messiah had two different missions fulfilled at two different times so jesus the messiah had two different missions fulfilled at two different times and this is what was hidden from the prophets see the messiah jesus he came First, as a savior, and second, he will come as a judge. See, at his first coming, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. At his second coming, he will come to to proclaim the day of vengeance. The first coming ushers in this year of grace. The second coming will bring the day of judgment. And I think there's a significance in the time frame used here. The year of the Lord's favor versus the day of his vengeance. The year of grace versus the the day of judgment. Now, it's not talking about a literal day. It's not talking about a literal year. But rather, the year signifies a a long period of time where the day signifies a single event, an instant. And what it's saying is the year of the Lord's favor, this is now. This is the inter-advent period that we are living in, this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. See, now we are living in the time of grace. Now the door of salvation is open. 
Now is the time of the Great Commission. Now is the time the gospel is to be preached throughout the world. And God's elect are gathered up from the four corners of the earth and brought into his kingdom. And it is a glorious year. A year that has gone on for at least 2,000 years now. And we don't know how much longer it's going to go on. We don't know how longer this year of grace will last. It could last another thousand years or it could come to an end today. But it will come to an end. And the end for us as individuals could come in two ways. So it could come as an end for the whole world when Jesus returns. But for each of us as individuals, when we take our last breath on this earth, that is when the year of grace ends for us. And when this year of grace ends, when the year of grace ends, either when the, when the year of the Lord's favor ends, then will be a day of judgment. Then will be the day of vengeance of our God. This will be a day of reckoning. This will be a day when, when God will once and for all set things right. And on that day, there will be perfect justice. God will avenge every wrong that was done, everything that was done, every evil act, every act of malice that was committed against another, every blasphemy, every sin that is committed against a holy God. All will be fully and perfectly avenged, fully and perfectly punished. Now, in one sense, we all long for justice. We, we, I mean, that's the way we're built, right? Even if you look at kids from early on, first thing they say is, that's not fair. They look to justice. We, we are built, we're hardwired for justice. And it's because we have, many of us have suffered awful injustice. But in another sense, if, if we really think about it, this thought of absolute justice, perfect justice, just terrifies us. And it terrifies us because we too, we know that we have done much injustice. We know that if we face perfect justice, this will not be a pretty sight. Our New Testament reading from Revelation, this shows us Jesus. It's not Jesus, meek and mild. It's not Jesus, the the babe in a manger that we sing about on Christmas. It's not Jesus healing the blind and the sick. It's not Jesus hanging on the cross. It's not even Jesus triumphantly coming out of the grave on Easter morning. This is Jesus riding on his white horse, coming to make war on his enemies. He's coming as a righteous judge with a a rod of iron and a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth to slay the wicked. He is the one who will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And this is the sad sad reality of the the fall is that every one of us, every one of us, no matter how, how good we are, no matter how nice we may seem, no matter how good we are relative to other people, The sad reality is every single one of us is under the wrath of God. Every one of us deserves this punishment that was spoken of in Revelation. See, God is a God of justice. And he will perfectly punish every single sin. See, at our death or at Jesus' second coming, every sin will be perfectly punished. It will either be punished in the sinner and the torments of hell, or or because of Jesus' first coming, His first coming, not as judge, but as Savior. These sins are perfectly punished, not in the sinner, but they are, for the one who is united to Christ by faith, these sins are punished in Christ as our substitute. John 3, 16 and 3, 17, speaking of Jesus' first coming, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, Jesus, Jesus in his first coming, did not come to condemn the world, but came in order to save those, save those who would come to him by faith. And now is the time. Now is the time when the, when the door of salvation is open. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of grace. But my friends, when he returns, or when we take our last breath in this world, then Jesus will be the judge, not the Savior. He will judge all of those who are not united to him by faith. And that will be a horrible, horrible day of vengeance for those who do not belong to Christ. And what we're going to do this morning is we're not going to look at that judgment. We're going to look at the year of of favor. This is where we are now. We are in the year of the Lord's favor. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this time that we're in now. We're going to to glean some some truths. We're really only going to be looking at one verse. We're going to be looking at this verse number one. So let me just start with this. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Well, the first thing we notice here is that salvation is trinitarian. Salvation is Trinitarian. Jesus is anointed by God the Father. In fact, that's actually what the word Messiah means. The word Christ means the one anointed, the anointed one. So Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ has been anointed by God the Father. And what is he anointed for? For a task, for a task of salvation. This is Jesus' mission. The mission of his first coming is the mission of salvation. And not only is he anointed by the Father, he is also empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And this means that Jesus, in his ministry, he didn't draw upon his own God nature, his own divine power as a second person of the Trinity. But he was our representative. He was the the second Adam. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, just as Christians, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, as a man, as the second Adam, he relied on the Spirit. He relied on prayer. He relied on Scripture in order to overcome the temptations that are common to us as human beings in this fallen world and to enable him to to be perfectly obedient to God's holy law. See, Jesus did what Adam failed to do. And Jesus did what all of Adam's descendants who, born by ordinary generation, were unable to do. Jesus perfectly and sinfully fulfilled God's law. And then for believers, for those united to Christ by faith, Christ's perfect obedience is then credited to the believer. Just as Adam was the representative of the human race, and just as Adam's sin was transferred to all those he represented, so Christ's obedience is transferred to all those who are united to Christ by faith, all those he represented them. But this, wasn't, this was only the first part of Christ's work as Savior, the mission for his first coming. See, Christ not only provides God's perfect righteousness for those who are united to him by faith, Christ also paid the penalty of the sins for those united to him by faith. See, basically what Christ is, he absorbs the wrath of God that those sins deserved. Your sins, my sins deserved. And this is the wrath that he himself will pour out on those who are not united to him by faith. And Christ had the capacity, as God, as a second person of Trinity, he had the capacity to absorb the infinite wrath of God because he was not only fully man, he was fully God. And as fully God, he had this capacity to to endure God's infinite wrath. I mean, just, just think about it. Just one sin that we commit is deserving an eternity in hell. Now think of all the sins you've committed. Now come 
pile, compound them with every burnt one who would be in Christ. That's the sins which were placed on Christ. Only God himself has the capacity to suffer that type of judgment. So Jesus' purpose in his first coming is to save his people. He is to be the atonement for their sins, to all those who come to him in faith. This, this, is, this is the big picture. He is our Savior. But what we want to do now is, as we look at this one verse, we're going to look at the different ways that this salvation of his first coming is expressed in Jesus. So we're going to look at four ways. Four ways. And due to translations, these may look a little different in Luke and Isaiah, but these are the four ways that we're going to look at this morning. First thing is he came to bring good news to the poor or the afflicted. Then he came to bind up the brokenhearted. He came to proclaim liberty to captives. And he came to open the eyes of those who are blind. Recovery of sight to the blind. So those are the four things that we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's take a look at these one at a time and see how Jesus, in his role of Messiah during his first coming, accomplishes each of these different tasks in his role as Savior as people. So first, bring Good news to the poor. Bring good news to the afflicted. Well, the word poor listed here, this, this is much broader than simply, simply being financially poor. See, being poor basically means being utterly hopeless, being destitute, being in a dire situation. I mean, think, think about poor in biblical times. This is not the same as poor today. I mean, people poor today, uh, the way you can look at it, the poor people today are overweight. Just think about that. In biblical times, poor people were not overweight. Poor people were on the verge of starvation. They were in dire straits. They were, they were desperate. They were without hope. And what Jesus is doing is he's bringing good news to the people who have no hope. The people who are, who are in an utterly destitute situation. And the thing is, the people who are without hope, other than hope in Jesus, they will look to Jesus. They will respond to Jesus. See, now the reality is, when it comes to our predicament as sinners uh, facing under the wrath of the Holy God, this utter hopelessness describes every single one of us. See, every single one of us is in this situation. The problem is we don't recognize it. We don't know it. See, while every one of us on our own is without hope, the problem is very few of us recognize the predicament. We think we're okay. The vast majority, both in biblical times and today, they don't recognize their, their spiritual poverty. They think, I, I, I've got it okay. You know, if, if you need this Jesus thing, that's, that's fine for you. But I've got it. I, I can, I, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I can trust in myself. Remember Jesus' first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount? His first beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what's the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who know their need for God. Those who are, are they, they know it, they're desperate, so they're ready to receive whatever hope is there. And it says, there's the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? That's salvation. They have gone from, from being citizens of this fallen world, citizens of heaven. It basically means they have been regenerated. They have been saved. As I, as I said this so many times, you need to get them lost before you get them saved. You see, the, the, the people who, the, the problem with, with us in, in our society for the most part is we don't know our need. But if we know our need, we are desperate for anything. Just think about it if, 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 if you have, a, say, cancer or some type of disease and you don't know you have it, you're happy. But if you find that you have it and someone has a, 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 a solution for it, you'll do whatever, you pay whatever to get that solution. But if you don't know you're sick, someone comes to you here, I got this, this cure for cancer. Say, well, great, but I don't have cancer, so I'm not worried about it. See, that, that's the thing. We have this spiritual sickness. And Jesus offers the, the, the solution. But if we don't know our need, 
we're not going to want it. And that is the problem that we see in this world. That's why it's so important. We need to get them lost before we can get them saved. Now, those of you who are, who are members of this church here at Northgate or attended our inquirer's class, we had a bunch. We had about 12 in our inquirer's class. Do you remember what the first membership vow is? It says, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? See, this is the, you've got to understand you have no hope. If, you, if you're trusting in anything other than Christ, you don't have Christ. See, that's the thing. We either have Christ, there's no Christ and. We either have Christ and we're, we're trusting in him. And if we, we want to add anything to it, we don't have Christ anymore. That's how serious it is. We have to understand. We have no hope. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. And unless we understand this reality of our, our spiritual predicament, that we are without hope, save in his sovereign mercy, we will not seek that sovereign mercy, nor will we even see any, a, any need for it. So this is, we, we, basically what we would do is we, we would waste our year of grace. If we don't think we need it, this, while the door of salvation is open, we will waste it. And we'll just keep going on happy, happy, happy until we hit the horrors of that day of judgment. So the good news preached to the poor and received by the poor is that they can be made right, right with God. They could have their sins per, forgiven. They could go from eternal death to eternal life and it's only by Christ. It's only by the merits of Christ, which is received by grace alone through faith alone. So this is the first expression of the salvation we see. The second expression of salvation is found in verse 1, is that Jesus will bind the brokenhearted. This is beautiful. He will bind the brokenhearted. You see, our, our sin problem is not just a matter of facing God's wrath, as, as horrible and terrible that, as that is. Our problem goes much deeper. You see, this rupture of the relationship with God it not only puts us under God's punishment, but it also corrupts us, and it corrupts every aspect of the creation. It mars and distorts God's image in us. See, we're no longer what we were meant to be. And what we were meant to be is the only thing that can really make us happy, can only make us joy. But we do no longer have this. And it corrupts this world. This world is not what God intended it to be. It corrupts the natural world. See, instead of being this gracious home given to us by God, it is a hostile environment. It is fallen. It is groaning. And our relationships, even our relationships, we're supposed to have unity with one another. Our relationships are damaged by the fall. And even the most intimate relationship between a husband and his wife, this is supposed to be the closest relationship we can have here on earth. Even this is distorted in this fallen world. And life in this fallen world and with a fallen nature is, is at best, the best it could be is frustrating for us. Right? You ever have, even the best days you have, there's something in it that's just not right. And it's something that, that causes frustration. But more often than not, it's, it's unbearably miserable. And because of this, we are brokenhearted. This is, this is true for unbelievers and believers as well. But Christ came to bind the brokenhearted. See, the gospel not only frees us from the penalty of sin, the eternal punishment, it also, to some extent, mitigates the effects of the fall. This is beautiful. And this can even be seen by Jesus' healing ministries as he's healing people. This is, he's, he's mitigating, he's undoing the fall. As you see crippled and people who are lame and Jesus helping them to walk and giving sight to the blind, he is undoing some of the effects of this fall. And you're seeing how, how he's binding up the broken heart of the people who are affected by the fall. They are... A little, it's a, making this world a little more bearable than it was. 
See, when a sinner is transformed into a new creation in Christ, we, we are transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of heaven. But we're still fallen. We're still fallen. Our world is still fallen. But by the power of the Holy Spirit in us and, and by God's grace, little by little, this is a verse, by, by goodness and mercy, we can have real joy in this fallen world. We can really enjoy this fallen world. And this process is slow, it's limited, and it will not be complete in this world. See, we cannot look for heaven on earth. We will never get heaven on earth. But we can make it a little bit more bearable. It will be complete one day. It will be complete when we are in glory. So this is, and this is really part of our personal sanctification process. In a sense, it's a way that we Christians, we are called to be salt and light in this world. We are called to be instruments of God's mercy in this world. In a sense, we can, as Christians, redeem this fallen culture. Now, we do need to be careful here. Because you may hear a lot about this term, redeem the culture. And a lot of churches throw this around, and they use it almost like a secondary mission of the church. You know, you got to proclaim the gospel, get people saved, and then you're going to redeem the culture, you know, undo the effects of the fall. I don't think they're two separate things. I think redeeming the culture, making the world a better place, is simply the natural result, the natural effect. When people are new creations in Christ, this is what they do. They will redeem the world. It is the natural pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the being salt and light in the world. In fact, if you think of all the material and, and social progress that we've seen in the world, compare back to biblical times. You look at, the, you look at the, the, the medical advancements we have, the scientific advancements, but also the social advancements. I heard a, 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 it was a letter that was, that was discovered around the time of the New Testament. It was a, a, a letter written from a husband to his wife, and the wife was pregnant. And kind of he, he talked about where he's traveling and so forth. And then at the end, he kind of said, well, when the baby's born, if the baby's a boy, you can let it live. If it's a girl, kill it. That was, nat- that was just like, a, like a, a natural way of thinking back then. And do you see, we've completely changed. Even unbelievers would, would be in horror at that. And this is the natural effect of, of the Christian gospel going on. This is a natural effect of the Christian worldview. You think of the advances we have in technology. I mean, we don't have babies aren't born, more babies are not dying and, and, and women are not dying in childbirth. Those are advances that we have. And those advances are thankful to the Christian worldview. People will say that science is, is a, you know, Christianity is opposed to science. You know, I believe science, not Christianity. Science is only possible because of Christianity, only possible in a Christian worldview. And we see this even in a post-Christian culture. They're living off the the capital of the Christian past. But this is part of the way of of binding up the brokenhearted. See, Christ binds up the brokenhearted, and the gospel binds up the brokenhearted, partially by undoing the effects of the fall. The next expression of Christ's salvation expressed in verse 1 is that Christ proclaims liberty to the captives. And these captives are those who are held captive to sin. See, one of the most heartbreaking effects of the fall is that much of the misery we experience here is self-imposed, is it not? Or imposed by those who love loved ones. Do you see? Or imposed by those who love us. And this is because each one of us is in bondage to sin. We don't do what we want to do, but rather we do that which we don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. I mean, think of all the misery caused by addictions, caused by domestic abuse or or neglect, you know, neglect of families, neglect of health, neglect of our souls. It's utterly tragic. 
And think about people you know. Th- th- make this personally. Think about someone you know personally right now. Think uh, It could be a family member. It could be a client at the Anchorage. It, it could be a friend that you're counseling. And you could see the problem. You could see it coming from a mile away. It's inevitable. They're on that path that's heading for a cliff, and you know you're trying to warn them. They may even know it, but they can't change. They can't change the behavior. And why? They are in bondage, bondage to their sin. But you see what we have here? Christ proclaims liberty. Christ proclaims freedom to those captives, those who are held captive to their sin. And this is really just another aspect of Christ's work of salvation. Christ saves us from the penalty of our sin, that's, that, that's we're no longer condemned by our rebellion against God. This is, this is called our justification. We're no longer facing the wrath of God. That's great. But we're not only free from this condemnation of sin, we're also free from the power of sin. This is called sanctification. And this means that once we are a new creation in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, we are now able to obey God. We're able to resist sin. We're able to, to say no to sin and say yes to God. See, before regeneration, we are slaves to sin. We cannot say yes to God. We cannot please God. We cannot resist sin. We can only sin. But once we are converted, we have the power. It's weak. It's weak at first. I think the best way to think of it, think of a person who might be paralyzed, who has no use of their legs. You know, they're, they're in a wheelchair. And they say there's a new operation that comes that can, that can repair their spinal cord. And they get this operation. Now, they're not going to go out dancing right away, Right? They're going to start, you know, they might start wiggling their toes. They might be able to, with some physical therapy, they might be able to to stand. They might learn to to walk and maybe eventually to run. Well, this is like how sanctification is. We were like the person who was was, uh, paralyzed. But it's actually worse than that. We were actually dead, spiritually dead. And when we're regenerate, we now have the ability to obey God. We go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. See, our, our, our spiritual muscles have atrophied. And they need to be strengthened. We need to, we need to go through not physical therapy, but spiritual therapy. And spiritual therapy are the things that we call the means of grace. What we're doing now, worship, uh, reading scripture, that's a means of grace. Prayer, uh, listening to the word preached, the sacrament that we're going to These are all the things that are a part of our spiritual therapy that strengthen us. And these are the things that, that build up our spiritual strength to obey God and come out of this bondage that we have to sin. So the last expression here of Jesus' saving work from his first coming, it says, opening the eyes of those who are blind, recovering sight for the blind. And if you're using the ESV, you might be wondering where I got this. This is an alternative translation that you'll see in, 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 the, in the text. This is actually an oil Septuagint translation. I'm just using this because it's what Jesus used, and it matches it closer to what we had in the Luke passage. But in a sense, this is a description, really, of the first component of, of what is needed for a person to be saved by Christ. See, the lost are blind. That's their problem. They are blind. They are blind to their poverty. They are blind to their need. They are blind to their lostness. Blind to the way of redemption in Christ. Blind to the, the beauty and majesty. You know, they, they wonder, why do you come to church? Because we love Christ. We want to see Christ. We want to have an encounter with Christ. They're blind to that. They don't see any beauty. They don't see any majesty in Christ. So this is what we see here. So, me, so, so it's just tying all these things together. In this one verse we see four expressions of Christ's salvation that was accomplished during his first coming. See, Christ is the one who fulfilled this prophecy. We need, we need to be very clear about that. This is about Christ. But it doesn't mean it's only applicable to Christ. It's not only applicable to Christ. It doesn't have any application to us. So what is the application to us here in Northgate, 2023? Well, as Christians, as, as, as new creations in Christ, we too have this Trinitarian calling. 
We have been united to Christ, to God the Son. We have been empowered by God the Holy Spirit who, who indwells in us as believers. We have been anointed by God the Father. We have been given a divine calling, a divine mission by God himself. And this anointing is similar. This calling is similar, but not the same as the calling on Christ. See, as human beings, we can, we can never do what Christ did. We, we are not God. We do not have the capacity to atone for our own sins, let alone the sins of others. So Christ was anointed to accomplish salvation. We are anointed to point to and to celebrate what Christ accomplished. We are to proclaim this accomplished. We are to testify to the reality of Christ's accomplishment of redemption. And how do we do this? We do it by our witness. We do it by our proclamation of the gospel. By our godly character. By our acts of Christian love and service. We are anointed to be the means by which the Holy Spirit applies Christ's work of redemption to all those who the Father has appointed, has, has appointed to eternal life. And just think about it. What a privilege. What a privilege we have. We have been given this calling. We, we, we have been given the calling to be the means that the Holy Spirit uses to bring others to eternal life. May we be faithful to this during this year of grace, during this time when the door of salvation is still open. But remember, there is coming a time. There is coming a time when the year of grace will come to an end and give way to the day of judgment. The day when Christ comes not as Savior, but as judge to execute God's vengeance on all who are not united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So my friends, there is an urgency. There is an urgency to our calling, an urgency to our great commission. And may we be faithful during this year of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this great commission that you have given to us. And Father, we ask that you will give us the urgency. You will help us to realize that this, the door of grace is open now. And now is the time, but it will not be open forever. And Father, I pray, I pray if there are any here who do not belong to you, anyone who hears my voice who do not belong to you, that that will end now. But for those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that you will give us that urgency that we will not take for granted. We will not continue to go through and with, with people who do not know you and just be casual about it, but we will have this burning desire to share your grace with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.